it's just important to start infusing humanity and love and respect back into the conversation grace this episode is sponsored by etched communication a full-service public relations and crisis management firm connect with etched via their website at etchedcom.com that's e-t-c-h-e-d-c-o-m-m.com I know we're going to have such a wonderful conversation today on Our Voices Matter. I am thrilled to welcome Rania Mancorius to the show. And Rania, you have your own podcast. We do. It is called uh, Styling Social Justice. And yes. of course, Rania is also, her main job is as the CEO of Crime Stoppers Houston, which is a huge, huge job and opportunity. It's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. I don't look like the crime fighting type, but I mean <laughs> I love I love everything about what we're doing and ever since I walked in the doors there in 2006, I've loved everything about it. So you started there as an intern, right? I did. So I'm originally born and raised in Boston mm -hmm. and you know, um, really very happy there had a really unique background my sister owned a fashion magazine I was helping her run the fashion magazine learned so much about marketing and you know how you present products to the world was in law school at the time but got married and um, to a Texan who wouldn't live anywhere else but Texas literally I of mean course. and he said it pretty yeah. much straight yeah. out and so I found myself in Texas with this really unique background a master's degree in marriage and family therapy a law degree you know running a business doing some consulting thinking, what am I going to do here? What am I going to do? And and I wanted to help people, but I didn't know how. And Texas was very different. Um, I went to a few law, inter you know, interviews at law firms, and they said, you're great, but you're still just a damn Yankee. And I was like, <laughs> no way. Yes. They really said that No, to they you? did. And it was actually funny because I said just, uh, okay, but just so you know, you know, people from Boston don't like the Yankees. We like the Red Sox. And he, <laughs> I'll never forget because this guy looked at me like I was, absolutely crazy and I'm looking at him and I'm like you just call me a Yankee like you know it was really really hard <laughs> but it was great too because I ended up calling a friend in New York and I said I, do, I feel very much out of place and I don't know what to do and she said you're in Houston look in the nonprofit sector you're in the nonprofit you know capital of the world yeah. and so I said well that's f interesting so I went back to the University of Houston Law Center mm -hmm. looked in their book and Crime Stoppers you know, I thought, God, that's not a good name. What is that? You know, I don't know what that is. Was looking for um, somebody with, you know, marketing and legal experience. And I said, well, I ran a magazine and I'm a law student. You know, I know I've done a lot. Actually, at the time, I was working a lot with, you know, a copyright law. And so I said, well, I'll go. I'll just go interview. And I walked in. Um, Catherine Cabanis was the new executive director, just followed Kim, Kim Og, mm -hmm. and she started talking about what they did, and I immediately fell in love you with it. Love. All my worlds were colliding, you know, this love for sort of family, which is why I did my master's degree, my love for like law and politics and justice, which is kind of why I went to law school. Um, she looked at me, she said, look, you're fantastic, but at the end of the day, I'm looking for an intern, you know, $10 an hour. And I said, I'll take it. And I said, can I just go back to Boston when I need to? She said, <laughs> yes, you can. And I started like the next week and have never ever, I mean, I've just loved it ever since. Every That's minute of amazing. it. amazing. So you went from intern then to executive director after a few years. Yes. And then CEO. Yes. So what's the difference between executive director and CEO? What was that transition? Meaning, you know, we can't give you any more money. Take another position. <laughs> no, no, really none. And honestly, to be very honest, you know, 
executive director is a more comfortable term in the nonprofit world. You know, yeah. we're executive directors, but we were in the middle of a really difficult capital campaign. Um, when I was hired, they said, we want you to be sort of the new life of Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers has been an anonymous tip line. We've treated it like an anonymous program. We've been catering to the anonymity of the tipster since the organization was created. Mm -hmm. But the, the anonymity of the tipster is only one thing that we do. We are very active in the schools. We're very active in the community. We should be letting people in. We should be talking to everybody everywhere we go, and you're the person that can help us do that. And so they said, but you also have to build the first ever Crime Stoppers headquarters anywhere in the world. And I was like, okay, we will figure out how to do this. And so it was hard because I found myself trying to meet with CEOs that were like, who are you? Who are you? No, no, thank director. you. Uh, yeah, and Crime uh, Stoppers of so the police department? The yeah. No, we already pay taxes. Goodbye. Yeah. You know, and it's, no, we're a nonprofit. No, please give me an opportunity to talk to you. So I think the board was, you know, trying to think, let us even put you on an equal, equal playing field, field. Yes. so you can maybe get your foot in the door. So, um, and you know, the title to me, for somebody that takes intern, you know, after having a master's and a law degree, I don't care about titles at all, yeah. but I care about success. And that's the most important thing to me. So whatever it takes to get the job done, I'll, you know, we want to do. So for people who don't know what Crime Stoppers is, although I can't imagine there are that many people who've never heard of it. Yeah. So here in Houston, of course, I used to say the, the number all the time yes. on the air, 713-222-TIPS. <laughs> For anyone who has, um, you know, wants to give anonymous information about a crime, but as you were just saying, there is so much more to the Crime Stoppers brand, if you yes, will, than yes. just literal crime fighting. So, what is it that people don't know about Crime Stoppers and what you do and the impact that you're having in the community that you really want them to understand? Well, I think it's really important. When I became the executive director in 2013, Rice University, through their capstone project, they were studying our organization. So, I kind of picked up the results of that and was really diving into it. And they, one of the teams had said, you know, it's fascinating. We went all over Houston. And we said, you know, are you from Houston? Are you visiting? Did you just move here? Next question, have you ever heard of Crime Stoppers? They said 100%, almost 100% said, yeah, yeah, that's on the news. I mean, I heard about it on the news. They followed up with the next question, do you know what they do? And only 2%, and that's asking native Houstonians as well, wow. only 2% knew what we did beyond that tip line. Mm -hmm. So we knew there was an opportunity for growth there. I mean, our mission is to solve and prevent crime in partnership with citizens, media, and law enforcement. For the longest time, the notion of solving and preventing was, you know, if we found John Smith who killed somebody, we put him behind bars, we've solved a crime, we've prevented a crime, because John Smith can't reoffend. But our team sort of saw a difference in prevention. There's so much there with education. There's so much we could do about, you know, talking to kids about being safe at school, about what to do online, about teen dating violence. You know, now kids are dealing with drugs, they're dealing with synthetic drugs, they're dealing with online gaming challenges, they're dealing with harassment online, stalking, um, impersonation, online bullying. We have moms or, or, or families that are dealing with domestic violence, with animal cruelty, with home invasions, with identity theft. There's so much elder abuse human trafficking. I mean, in a city as large and diverse as Houston, there is so much that we can study as a community to, one, make our city better, make our city safer, but also proactively protect ourselves and our kids. So our Safe School program, um, we've been working on it since 1997, really, really rebuilt it in 2013. 
In 2018, it became the first ever Crime Stoppers um, brand, Crime Stoppers of Houston Safe School Institute. Um, we're in over 200 schools. We've reached over 1.2 million children. Um, we've talked to them about everything from crime prevention to tips to tricks to strategies. We've removed 300 weapons in Houston from our kids' schools before the magic word, before they could ever be used against another student. Um, Governor Abbott recognized us after Santa Fe and asked us to expand this program across the state and train all other crime stoppers across the state. We're very active in the community. We're very active with victim services. There's so much that this nonprofit gem, and you know, I say the word nonprofit as often as I can because people still think, well, I didn't know HPD does all that, you know? <laughs> and we're not a part of the police department. Now, our first, our first group that we serve is the police department. You know, we're, fine, we're getting information to give to our law enforcement partners. We are serving our law enforcement partners every day. Um, we're, our HPD has been our host agency for 40 years, but we also serve the community, and as a nonprofit, all the funding, the way we operate, our bylaws are all under mm -hmm. nonprofit mm -hmm. guidelines. So, okay, I want to I want to really hit on this school safety issue yeah. because I know it's a it's a big initiative um, for what you do, and you're having tremendous success. I, I'm stuck on the fact that you have removed 300 guns, weapons, weapons, so knives, excuse guns, me, weapons mm -hmm. from our schools, Houston yes. schools. How did that happen? I mean, was this a result of students talking and telling what they've seen and heard, or how, does, how do you go about doing that? So this has been my big thing with school safety. I have noticed that so many people have the conversations up here. Let's talk about um, you know, bulletproof backpacks. Let's talk about um, you know, this, the physical structure of the building, uh, putting an alarm system at the front door. All of these things are important conversations, by the way. But people are overlooking the kids, and the kids are the first line of intelligence. They're the ones that know everything that's gonna happen before it happens. They know who's bringing the gun, who's bringing the, the knife, who's selling the drugs, who's selling the prescription medication. They know um, gang activity, they know who's feeling you know, um, bullied, maybe isolated, maybe suicidal. They know who's posting weird comments online. They know everything. So back in 1997, certainly we weren't, I wasn't involved at the time, but the board had the foresight to make sure the tip line was in the schools. And at the time it was just going to the schools, maybe talk to the entire high school at once, say in a rally, hey, Crime Stoppers is here. If you know something's gonna happen, call us anonymously. We'll work anonymously. You'll get a cash reward. We'll never ever know who you are. We never ever know who the tipsters are from the moment they call to the moment they get their cash reward. So the kids found safety in that. They knew that there was someone they can call. And eventually they called and they called again and other schools called and they called more. And now after 2013, after the shooting at Santa Fe, I'm sorry, at Sandy Hook, when you had 21st-year-olds that lost their lives, we realized the program needed to expand. And in addition now, in addition to offering the tip line in the middle schools and high schools, we go in from kindergarten to 12th grade. We talk to these kids about everything they need to know about being safe in an age-appropriate manner. So with kindergartens, we're not talking about a tip line, but we might be talking about being a good neighbor, being a good citizen, respecting a police officer, respecting your teacher, maybe noticing if your friends seem sad or lonely, how to respond if your friends seem sad or lonely, and then the conversation obviously 
develops in 12th grade. We're talking about human trafficking and drugs and cyber safety and cyber stalking and um, gang violence and, and teen this dating violence and really difficult things. So is this only happening in the Houston community or is this happening nationwide? Because this needs to be in every school. That's, and, and you know what, Linda, this has been the biggest issue is that, you know, we don't have lobbyists walking down the streets and, you know, the corridors of Austin. And the way Crime Stoppers work, we're all independent nonprofits. There's no hub. You know, we don't, there's no... There's no overarching no, umbrella organization. No. There's There are rules to become a Crime Stopper. There are, there are protocols to report your tips and report your solved cases, but that's it. And and people get probationary fees all the same way, whether, you know, regardless of where you're operating. But in terms of the prevention programming, we kind of went out on our own and we did the research and we poured in resources. And Houston's such an incredible city. We are the city to do this, but we were still stuck in the Houston bubble. Right. When Santa Fe happened and it was like right there, it just broke us. You know, why are we restricted to the Houston bubble? We should we should have been everywhere. So we we talked to the governor's office and they agreed, um, and they said the governor wants you to actually train all crime stoppers across the state. David's law had passed. There there was a requirement for anonymous reporting platforms anyway in the school. Explain what David's law is. So please. David's law passed at the 85th legislative session, and of course it was due to you know a young boy David who was 16 who committed suicide after being relentlessly bullied. And, um, you know, his mom has shared recently, she was just visiting um, with Crime Stoppers and spoke at a luncheon that kids were bullying him, harassing him, stalking him. Other kids knew, nobody was reporting, nobody was saying anything. And part of what she wanted to ensure was one, that there was, you know, bullying education, which of course we do, but that there was a way for kids to report and report anonymously, that there would be no fear of retaliation, that they could say what they knew and even just move on. But she wanted to make sure kids could report. So that's now a requirement in the state of Texas. And Crime Stoppers is an anonymous platform. It's protected by state statute, and uh, our tipsters are always anonymous. So the fact that we're already in the schools, the fact that we have such a robust program, the governor quickly identified this as a tool. We've been training almost 40% of the state at this point, other Crime Stoppers organizations. We want to now, we'll be launching a webinar series this fall, thanks to Spindletop Charities. We'll now be replicating the model, hopefully nationwide. Excellent, because that was going to be my, my next question is what needs to happen in order to get this in every school? It's so interesting that you, I'm so glad you made the point about kids being the first line of, what was the word you Intelligence. Used? Intelligence, not defense. Yes. The first line of intelligence. Um, I did a, um, a videotaped a panel discussion last week at Rice University. We were talking before we even got started, and it's about countering violent extremism. And one of the panelists made a point of explaining to the audience um, her perspective about how we as a society do not validate and listen to our young people yeah. the way that we should, that we underestimate their intelligence, their passion, their intellect, their drive, and that they want to be a part of the conversations at a certain age, of course, that's appropriate. But when they're in high school and we're having these kinds of conversations, there is so much that they can contribute that we are not allowing them to, and that's to our detriment. That's, that's on us. 
So for you to say that, I think, is so important for people to hear. And that's what we've been doing, you know, and that's why the program's been so successful. We, we were in the schools in the late 90s, well before this was a national hot topic. We were investing in the kids. Mm -hmm. What do you think? What do you see is happening? What are some of the signs that we're missing that you're you're picking up on? And here's a way for you to call anonymously. And it's just always worked. And you know, after these school shootings, and of course they're, they're horrific, whether you're a parent or not, they are horrific. You know, I see sort of like national people, is, does anyone in this country have an answer? And I'm screaming as loud as I can that, you know, we have an answer in Houston. Houston has, the Houston community invested in an answer in 1997. 20-something years later, this answer has removed 300 weapons from schools, reached 1.2 million kids, solved 2,000 school cases, and is only growing. And we want to share it because it is imperative that all kids and all schools feel safe at all times. That's just, to me, a non-negotiable when you talk about a thriving city, a thriving state, a thriving country. There's so much that I'm sure comes across your desk um, and some of the incredible people that, that you get to meet. Um, having been with Crime Stoppers um, uh, since 2013, so six years now, mm. um, I'm wondering what, if you've noticed any, any change in how people are relating to each other. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to get to the empathy part of our conversation mm. now that you know we were having before we started, but it's always at the crux of every conversation we have on this, on this podcast about human connection yeah. and being able to empathize with one another and not otherize yes. each other. Yes. Um, have you noticed any any what have you noticed? Well, I think that's a really important conversation because in the beginning, you know, I we would notice that Houston, and, and I think any place, operates as sort of segregated pockets. You know, this is my community. I paid a lot to live here. Um, my home is safe. I pay higher taxes than maybe those people. Um, the mall's nicer where I am. The private schools are right there. Maybe this area has a better public school. Uh, my husband works here. I work there. I'm fine. I'm fine. Oh, I feel bad about what's happening to those people over there. Mm -hmm. It's not really my world. We've worked really hard to say, wait a minute. First of all, we have to care about those people over there. Second of all, we have to realize that we're in a transient city. Anywhere you live, you know, we're going to mix and mingle and those people over there, and I say it in quotes because I can't stand that sort of notion, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they're going to end up at your beautiful mall. They're going to end up in your neighborhood. We've got to care about each other. And third, you're not in a separate neighborhood. You are not in a bubble. You think you are. You are not. And we really worked hard on those conversations. Now, because we focused on sort of the empathy and the caring and the really making people rethink how they're defining themselves and moving other people away, you're a different group. What happens to you doesn't happen to me, right. therefore doesn't matter really to me. We've, we've worked so hard to break that. Human trafficking is a good one to talk to, to kind of put this into perspective. When we started to bring this up years and years and years ago, people say, I feel so bad. You know, literally, this is what I'd hear. I, I, you know, when I'm doing my nails, I feel so bad and I always wonder, is this a trafficking victim? Or if I'm at a restaurant and I always try to make eye contact with the busboy to think, is he here okay? 
And I, I think of the CPS kids, and I think, God, I hate the fact that they have to do that, but you know, what can we do? That's just the fate that they were born into. And it's sort of like you listen to this and your blood is slowly boiling, mm -hmm. but you're thinking, how do we break this down and make you realize that this issue affects you directly, should matter to you directly, could be your daughter tomorrow, could be your son tomorrow. So we started to break the conversations down, the myths, the misunderstandings, the false realities, the falsehoods, and make people realize that one, crime, whatever the topic we focus on crime can affect you tomorrow, no matter where you are, no matter what fake walls you think you've built. But two, regardless, you should care about what's happening to your neighbor, what's happening to the other people, what's happening to this person or that person, and you've gotta start understanding the realities of what hap what's happening. Um, we're so quick to put things in other buckets so we can separate ourselves. Yeah. And we mislabel, we misunderstand, we recreate narratives, and all of that is wrong. So we sometimes get into the terrible narratives, we get into the ugly stereotypes, we get into the that's them, we don't care, so we can break it up and say that you are not looking at it right. That's wrong, and actually it can be you tomorrow. Um, I think those have broken down walls, and you see now groups like the Houston 20 really activating in topics like human, um, human Houston, oh my God, human trafficking. <laughs> um, the Houston 20 really activating and talking about human trafficking. Um, women that maybe five years ago would say, that's not my problem, it's not my world, now saying, We'll, we'll go in, it could be us tomorrow, it could be you tomorrow, it doesn't matter who it is, We've, we all have to be in on this together. Those are important conversations and I've definitely seen a shift. So people are listening and, and trying to have those conversations now? I think so. think so, with empathy. With empathy. And, and, yeah. and empathy because unfortunately they realized that it could be them tomorrow, it could be them today, but also regardless, we have to care about each other. That, that gives me hope to hear you say that. It, it really does because um, it's at the it's at the root, of course, of so many of the divisions that we're having. Yeah. We find it difficult to empathize with someone that we consider to be the other. Yes, and we don't really know or understand who that person is, what their circumstance is, etc. And and many times we don't take the time to know. And what you're saying is that by breaking this down and, and helping people to see and understand that they don't live in a bubble. Yes. And that you, you really should care about everyone. Yes. It's yeah. so important, and especially, you know, in this world where we're all able to, like, spit out our thoughts online mm -hmm. and kind of walk away, and you have, like, the protection of your phone or the computer, um, things you would never say face-to-face -face. for some reason you feel very confident to say it online, things that are hurtful, divisive, mean, targeted, um, things that I would call bullying and I would advise children not to do. Adults are doing it every five seconds in record numbers on platforms like Twitter and other, and other things. It's just important to start infusing humanity and love and respect back into the conversation, grace. I always talk about it, even at Crime Stoppers, can we just do everything with grace? It may not be an easy conversation, word, I know. but do it in grace. Do it in grace. Do it in grace. You know, you're, whether you're dealing with a victim, whether you're dealing with a difficult coworker, whether you're dealing with a, with a difficult donor, a really complex problem in a school, um, a horrible victim family, law enforcement, whatever it is, just can't we just operate in grace and kindness? I, 
to me, you know, I remember being a little kid, sort of people would talk about superhero, superpowers, and I'd say, I just want kindness. I want the gift of kindness because it's a powerful thing to me. If we can be kind to each other and really help each other care and bring out the best and support, and it doesn't matter if it's happening to me or you. I'm with you. I want to help you. I want to lift you up. I mean, can you imagine what Houston or any city or for any, that matter any city would be like? Would I be know, like I know, and I don't think it's not, it's it's possible. I think it's possible. Oh, I I agree. I I, I we couldn't go on if we didn't think it, it were possible yeah. because it, it is possible. So I want to talk a little bit more about about your back your backstory and your your background. You mentioned that you grew up in in Boston, mm -hmm. and your parents are from Egypt. Yes, yes. So tell me about that part of your heritage and whether um, how, how that has played into who you are today as a human being with so um. much passion and empathy for, for others. Well, our deputy director is in the room and she'll tell you the first thing is I don't like to be with anyone without sharing a meal. And I think that comes from being you know, Arabic and uh -huh. Egyptian. Um, but you know, I remember growing up, born and raised in Boston. At a very young age, I was sitting on our, our family room floor, and Barbara Walters was interviewing President Anwar Sadat, mm -hmm. who was the president of Egypt at the time, or maybe had recently been exiled. But we knew his daughter very well. She was a professor at um, a local university in in, Boston, in the Boston area, and we were very close to her. But I remember watching my parents watch the TV, and I kept looking back at my parents and kind of looking at Barbara Walters and looking at presidents and looking back and thinking. The power of this moment and of what Barbara Walters, people like you have done your whole life, was like in that moment, like something was birthed in me. Like I was like, I want to contribute in this way. I loved the power of it to connect people. But my parents very, very wisely were raising us sort of in a Christian Egyptian bubble, which is a very small bubble, like in an Orthodox church or an Arabic evangelical church. I mean, you're talking about super small communities saying you've got to integrate into the community, but you also have to know you're different. You know, if I, if you're never going to be a Barbara Walters, not because you don't have the ability, but because in Boston, everybody's blonde and blue eyed. You look at the TVs, TV networks, the news, the people like you don't have those jobs. We think you could be great but people like you don't have those jobs. So you want to help people. You like bridging gaps. You like, you know, you've seen sort of what, for example, my parents, if they'd stayed in Egypt, you know, having one daughter at the time, planning to have another child in the future, they knew very well the future wouldn't be maybe everything they had hoped for their family. They knew they had to leave everything, come to the States. You know, they they raised us saying, look, you live here, you have opportunities you would not have had if we stayed in, in Cairo. You're girls, you can do anything in this country. You just have to work hard, but you also have to be realistic. And so I was always raised between this desire to like, I loved women like you and media and the power of it and the positive conversation and the connectivity and the way to move the needle, but also realizing I'm an Egyptian girl growing up and bought, like, what am I gonna do? But I. I put, I figured out a way to mix all the passion together and said, I'm going to outsmart the system. I'm going to beat the system. And so I said, I'm going to go get a master's degree 
and marriage and family therapy. And my parents said, why would you do that? You're not going to be a therapist. Like, why would you do that? And I was like, well, I might be a therapist. And they were like, no, no, we don't understand that. And of course, in the Middle East, people don't air their dirty laundry, let alone sit and go to therapy. So they were like, I don't understand what you're doing. And I was like, but I think there's value there in being able to talk to people about where they come from and knowing, looking at everybody, not defining them, but knowing you come from something, you know, whether it's religion or, or broken family or perfect family or abuse, abusive family, whatever. It had value to me. And then I said, I'm going to go to law school because I noticed at that time, people moving the needle, having these big conversations usually had a law degree, always. Whether they use it or not, they had a law degree. So I said, I'm going to get a law degree. And of course, I did all that. And then, you know, my sister ended up having this big company and I started working with her and we had really compelling conversations. She was in New York during 9-11. You just started to see the world in a different place. And I always sort of had that backpack on that my parents sort of raised us with that, you know, you're here, we gave up everything, but you're in the best country in the world. You can do anything if you put your mind to it. Be realistic, but work really, really hard. And I kind of just kept putting that in my head, but moving forward, moving forward, moving forward. Um, and of course, you know, eventually ended up in Houston, thanks to a husband that would never, ever, ever, <laughs> ever live anywhere but Texas. But I'm so thankful I did because I think that mentality of you can do anything be realistic, but you can do anything, was met in a city where everybody thinks that way. You know, mm -hmm. you can do anything in Houston. I don't know that I could do this job in, in Boston. I don't know, maybe I, I left there when I was 28, I don't know. But in Houston, I know for a fact, you can literally do anything. So from, from Cairo to Boston, I think it all was kind of leading me to where I needed to be here. I love that story on so many different levels. Um, and you know, it's it's so interesting. For clearly you were made for this medium. So, you know, it's I it's it's just it's so. it's it know. break it well, I'm telling you you are. <laughs> I'll take okay. It from you. I'm telling you 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 are. And um, it breaks my heart to hear that you had a vision and a dream of what you wanted to do and perhaps be a, a broadcast journalist, mm. but because there were no women who looked like you on the air, Not that you that didn't time. even consider that as a realistic goal, no. which is just, it just, it's a travesty. And now there are women who look like you on the air. Absolutely. And it, it you know, so it's, it's interesting, you know, born in a different time or whatever, you're trajectory might have gone a different way but now you're you're using your very gifted communication skills on your podcast for in one way mm. and then also just in communicating with the public in everything you do so um, I, your parents sound extraordinary to me they're amazing I mean my my sister came and said she, I'm gonna start a fashion and in, in the Arabic world tell me you, what is this big company that your so sister well has? my sister is an on, was always an entrepreneur okay. we were little in Boston and you know in the fall the leaves would fall and she'd say listen if she's five years older she said I want you to go to the neighbor's house and I want you to offer to rake the leaves and I was like nine or ten and I she said and you tell them to pay you in two dimes and a nickel and I was like, okay. She goes, I want you. I've already ta I talked to them the other day. I want you to go to house number 26. And, okay. I go, I'd say, I'm here to rake leaves. I say, okay, go ahead. And they give me two dimes and a nickel. And then she said, give me one of the dimes. Go enjoy that. And I said, oh my God. She was like, she's always been an entrepreneur. She's been, but my parents fostered that. You know, they uh -huh. said, be realistic, but work hard. You know, right. my dad it was the inventor of a heat transfer labor label that changed the face of Rolling Rock beer 
um, and Heineken beer and a few others. So we, we're sort of an entrepreneurial family that thinks really big mm -hmm. and doesn't mind working hard. But my sister decided to start a, a fashion magazine. And at first my parents were like, okay, what are you talking about? And, and in our culture, you know, you're raised to say, are you gonna be a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, an engineer, or an accountant? Those are your options. That was you know, it. That's it. <laughs> and anything else, they don't understand. But she said, no, I wanna start a fashion magazine. They said, okay, work hard. And she she said, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do it just regionally in Boston. It was called Platinum Magazine. It was gonna be clean. You know, it's not like how to lose 10 pounds in 10 days, 10 signs your boyfriend's cheating on you, none of that. It was kind of like a vanity fair with a really high fashion content. And we just worked really hard. And then somebody picked it up in LA and said, this is really good content and really solid fashion. And they said, we wanna roll it out nationally. And then it ended up being rolled out internationally. Um, and you know, and it thrived, thrived. It, my sister was in New York during 9-11 during for the magazine. Um, and we ended up closing it about a year after because that industry got completely wiped. Um, for those following the magazine industry, it got completely wiped. But I learned a lot of valuable lessons. I mean, we would go to meetings in some of the biggest you know, fashion houses or ad agencies, and you'd look at sort of the roster of who was there before you, and it's like Harpo, like dying, you know. Um, and you'd sit with these people and they'd ask you these questions and it really refined sort of the marketing skills. And I realized you can have the best product in the world. You can be talking about the best nonprofit in the world, but if people have no idea what you do and don't feel connected to it, then it's losing its value. So when we took over Crime Stoppers, that was a really big thing for me. I wanted to connect it. I wanted to make sure people knew what we did and not just knew what we did, but felt like, this is my nonprofit. This applies to me right now. So, and it's weird. Everything in my mind goes back to Crime Stoppers. No, but I'm so glad you brought it full circle because that's that's the the connectivity piece is what's so important. So, what are what are the beyond the the school safety which we kind of delved yeah. into? What are the other um, programs and initiatives that that you are involved in with Crime Stoppers that? is not getting enough play that you really want to drive home with the public. You know, there there are many. So we are forever changing. We are ever responding to the needs and the pulse of the community. But human trafficking is a big one right now, and we're doing a lot in that space in terms of education and awareness. Our safe community program is about to be invested in heavily from our side in terms of reaching the community. Um, you'll be meeting with Mayor Turner later today to talk about illegal dumping and Constable Alan Rosen. Um, there are so many issues from animal cruelty and on that we want the community to plug into in a more direct way um, as sort of ambassadors. These are, these are issues people care about but sometimes don't know how to what to do about them. So if we can talk about, you know, what maybe, what your city council um, person is asking you to do or what your response to them should be or what are meaningful answers, what are meaningful resources, how can you contribute today, how can you make a difference today, that's huge. The other thing is victim services. You know, Houston is such an incredible city, but we have unique crime problems that are sort of a stain on our city, human trafficking being one, um, commercial robberies being one, being another, uh, property crimes, you know, there are a lot of different things that are unique to Houston that are kind of hard. Um, right now we're taking a deep dive, we're looking at sort of the re-victimization, you know, people are 
you know, that gets a little political, and we don't want to be political. But you know, when people commit a, fair, a very serious crime in Houston, a felony crime, you know, are they being let out on bond? Is it the right thing to do? Is the bond too low? You know, we're looking at cases at Crime Stoppers where somebody was wanted for human trafficking. They were caught. The judge said, you know, go out on your bond and um, be good, and they committed murder. Now we look for them again, and okay, we find them. Now it's aggravated assault. And oh, they, there's many issues there, but what about the victim? Yeah. The victims in all this, you know, they, victims rely on our infrastructure, on our law enforcement that, that's arresting. They're going out there and making the arrests on the judicial system to really follow the law on people to, if they're, it's a serious felony crime where it's, it is what it is, they shouldn't be out on deferred adjudication. I, I'm, you know, and again, I'm talking about serious, where you have a history of trafficking young girls. You know, I just feel strongly that we have an obligation to protect these victims. You know, we had one woman that said, you know, we, a man was stalking her and she called law enforcement, he broke in, he was arrested, he was let out, he came back and raped her. And she said, what am I supposed to do? I trusted the system. So we don't wanna get political and we hate the nexus of politics in these conversations, but at the end of the day, there are people in this city, this community, that are here for whatever reasons, they feel um, vulnerable for whatever reasons, life has made them this way, whatever it is. We have an obligation to make sure that violent, violent criminals, I'm not talking about the young kid that smoked pot, I'm talking about violent, capital murder, murder, rape, mm -hmm. human trafficking, that these people um, are taken care of by society. And I'm not saying we don't invest heavily in education for on the criminal side. What are they doing when they serve time? They need to be, we need to be investing in them there, but we've got to be separating them from community too. And I know a lot of people disagree with that, um, but we're really starting to look at that mm -hmm. to see how do we protect the victims right. there. And I, I get it. I understand trying to walk that line and you know where it intersects with politics because it has to, because yes. it requires legislation in yes. order to make some of these things happen. Um, and and I, I understand that. And when I when I launched the podcast, um, and I have this written in the show notes on the on the website, you know, I put very clearly this show is not about politics. Yeah. You know, it is about trying to help us understand and remember our common humanity within the context of what is happening politically and every in every other aspect of society. Um, but it, it's always a delicate dance, but it is one that, that we, we need to do. We have to. Yeah. You know, yeah. It just these are important issues. And, you know, there's, we had a, a, another issue that we've identified the last couple of years, actually, which is the safety of kids at camp. A mom called and said, you know, my son was, was raped at a very prominent Texas camp, and I have no recourse. There's nothing I can do to get help. And we said, there, there can't be right. Well, there can't be right. And so we started to dive into it and realize that there's very, there's almost no oversight of camps in Texas, and not just Texas, but across the country. And we started researching even more, found a, over a thousand cases of kids being sexually assaulted at camp. Nothing happens. So, you wow. know, Crime Stoppers is so it's so unique in that one. We like the research. We we want to hold the victim's hand. We want to be a resource. Um, law enforcement does its job in making the arrests. They're not going to. They're not. That's what they're there to do. We can be there to hold your hand, to petition for change, to study crime trends, and educate the community to take it and not a step further, but in a different direction. Right. 
And so we take pride in that. We yeah. love that, that work. Yeah. Well, I can't think of anyone better qualified, um, not just in terms of background and everything, but also with heart and passion than you oh. to lead this organization. So uh, I look forward to seeing really more of how you how you accomplish the goals that you've set for the organization. And I really, really hope that the school safety program that you've established and what you're doing to train other Crime Stoppers around the state and hopefully that will that will become a nationwide program because it's so easy. It's so it's easy. It's so easy. It's not from rocket you, from science. your mouth. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so, so easy. It's Why so is this not being done everywhere? I, everywhere. I think, I think we just didn't have the voice. But okay. when the governor did it, people like you say it. Okay. It, it moves gotta, the needle big time for us. We gotta get it out there. We got Rania. Thank you so thank much you for taking so the time much. to share. What an honor to sit with so you. So much with our audience today, thank giving you. us a, a lot to think about and a lot to be proud of, and knowing also there's still a lot of work to do. Well, we appreciate so it. We can thank do it together. Right? Yes. Thank yes. you. Thank you, Rania. And thank all of you for watching and listening and giving her permission to speak and for having the courage to listen with an open mind. We'll see you next time. I'm a firm believer that if we can find a way to better understand each other's experiences, we can find a way to accept and respect each other for who we are, even when we don't agree. That's the ultimate goal of this podcast. So with that in mind, what do you want the world to know about your story? How might your story, your truth, provide an important perspective to help bridge our divides? If you'd like to share your story with us for a chance to be featured on the podcast, all you have to do is go to our website, ourvoicesmatterpodcast.com, and click on What's Your Story? We can't wait to hear from you, because your voice matters. <laughs>